I just felt kind of stuck with where I was at. I was hustling, I was doing some nightlife stuff, I was doing some photography stuff. I asked my dad, I was like, hey, where's a good place to go and really make a lot of money? And he was like, probably Las Vegas. And I remember just partying all night and I remember waking up the next morning and something in me just like shifted. And I remember going in the mirror and just saying, God, if you're, if you're real, like I don't want this life anymore. You gotta show me, cause I I'm I'm ready to, to end this all. I don't I don't think I want this. I went to a Saturday night service at this church, and there was a guest speaker. He really used the the parable of the prodigal son. I could see myself in this story. I had a great life, all this talent, and I squandered it all on darkness. It felt like perfect love. The love of the Holy Spirit came and like dropped on me. And every lie, every demonic thought, every soul tired was like broken in this moment and fled from my life. I grew up um, in Long Island, New York, and uh, I grew up to uh, really having a, a single mom. So I never actually met my biological father. Um, and then my mom met my dad who raised me and really adopted me. I think maybe I was about two or three years old when they got married. And uh, he became my dad, and I had a honestly a pretty um, good upbringing. You know, there's nothing traumatic really in my childhood. We lived middle class. I always had access to the things that I needed, uh, but for some reason, um, I don't know. I just was drawn <laughs> towards uh, just a, a way of living that was rebellious, um, and you know, we never actually attended church. There's really no faith background. I mean, even still to this day, I'm the only Christian in my family. Um, so really, if you could say, if we had a God, it was money. It was uh, comfortability, <laughs> right? It was this, uh, this facade of the perfect life. So Travis, take us through your life. How did growing up without knowing about a God or having any sort of like set religion in the house kind of lead you? And where did that, you know, attraction to rebellion kind of take you as you got older? Uh, I think the rebellion really started with, uh, with hip hop. <laughs> I, I remember uh, being like so angry and just being like, I would always live in the basement, like whatever house we had, I was, I was always trying to find the lowest place in the house or the place away from everyone where I could blast music. And I just remember being in my room, like yelling. I, I don't know if you guys remember the album Tupacalypse now, <laughs> but it, this album was just filled with like this rage. I would just remember like Rage Against the Machine, like all of these like really like just hardcore music that for some reason my heart was drawn to. And it just kind of spiraled into just more rebellion. Uh, I went to military school at the age of 12 and was sent away because really my parents didn't know what to do with me. There was just this tension, this like, I feel like in a way I was just made for war <laughs> and I didn't know what, I didn't know what to do with it. So, um, yeah, it just, there was no outlet for it. So, but I, I really matured at military school. I think in a way it was really good for me. Um, and even has a lot to do with the way I am today. I remember my parents beginning to fight more and more. Um, when I came out of military school and I was in middle school 
And now, you know, I was interested in girls and starting to like uh, just really go out there and like, okay, what does this life look like? And um, I really had no idea what like marriage really looked like. If anything, um, it didn't seem like my parents were happy half the time. And um, my dad was always working. They said they were getting a divorce, you know, and there I was at 15 kind of with this decision of, do I now live with my mom or do I live with my dad? And, you know, the whole rebellion thing, I could get away with a lot more living with my dad <laughs> than I could live with my mom. So there I was now, you know, teenager entering into high school and not having a whole lot of supervision at all and just really just unhealthy relationships with women um, or, you know, girls at the time. And like, it, it just spiraled into this like need for always to always to have someone, you know, like if it was, if this relationship ended, well, I had to replace that um, or I had, I had to have multiple relationships. So that kind of um, with the allure of hip hop and money and just that lifestyle, it just began to compile on different actions that I would take in my life um, that were really destructive. So in my chase for money, I began to hustle CDs. <laughs> so like, I don't know if, if you guys know, but like when like 50 Cent and like K-Slay and DJ Clue, uh, this is all like New York, like mixtape history, right? And I would like go to the city, I would get all the hottest like DJ CDs and we would burn them and then distribute them all throughout upstate New York. And it became like such easy money. There's this entrepreneurial spirit in some of us. And like, regardless of whether it's illegal or legal, <laughs> like that the same, like the core of that, that heart is still there. And I just became, became really addicted to money in a way, especially when it was like fast money and uh, just the ability to be able to produce. It almost became like a sport in a way, just really competitive. And that led to uh, one day I was walking through um, one of the malls in New York and I went into this store because I would go in and, and hustle CDs to different people at, that were working. And I met this girl who I thought was really, really pretty. And it turns out she didn't like hip hop. She was into dance music. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go find her the best like dance CD, right? And and that's what she was in like house and dance music. So I went and I found it and I brought it back to her and we started dating. We It was really toxic. I was dating other girls at the same time and she ends up getting pregnant and she kind, of, she kind of grew up in a non-practicing Catholic family, but a lot of guilt, right? And it was kind of like, oh, well, like we should really get married now. There's this pressure now to like become a family. And we, we did. So we got married. And I remember like they wanted to baptize my son, my first son. And I remember like we have this picture where the, the, the priest is like sprinkling water on his head. And the look on my face is just disdain for this moment. Like I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to do this. I had no interest in any kind of religious experience. You know, we thought we were living a decent life. You know, it's kind of like the way I was brought up. Like we weren't bad people. We weren't involved in crazy stuff, but still we, you know, 
we had issues. I just felt kind of stuck with where I was at. I was, you know, hustling. I was doing some nightlife stuff. I was doing some photography stuff. And I asked my dad, I was like, hey, like besides New York, like where's a good place to go and really make a lot of money? And he was like, probably Las Vegas. <laughs> There's a lot of money in Las Vegas, especially in the entertainment industry. So we began to like just process this, like, okay, do we want to leave? And we ended up moving um, to Las Vegas. We had no family there. We had never even been there. It wasn't even like we went and visited. We just picked up and moved. And so there we were in Las Vegas, my, my wife, my son, and I was still just searching for whatever satisfaction, whatever form of pleasure that I could search out, whether it was money, partying, uh, alcohol, drugs, women, like it was just, and, and Vegas was just <laughs> coming in with a New York hustle mentality into Vegas. It was just kind of a free fall, you know? Um, it was just easy to fit in and even just move a little bit faster than everybody else. Now, Travis, how old were you when you made this big hop from New York to Vegas? Um, it was uh, 2007. I was like 26 when all of this happened. And uh, so, I mean, you figure, you know, a young 20-year-old kid, right, trying to figure out life and really having access to a city that has a lot to offer if that's what you're looking for. And, it, you know, Las Vegas destroys people's lives if they allow it to. Between the gambling, alcohol, I mean, the after-party life, it's just you can party 24-7 in Vegas if you wanted to. So after moving to Las Vegas, you know, we had a little apartment with my wife and my son and I would just go and party and really work. So like I would start promoting nightclubs and I met this DJ and me and him started this nightlife photography company where like you come into the nightclub, you're partying with your friends and we would take your picture and then sell you the prints. So I started just basically partying for a living, right? And making a lot of money doing that and it was all cash business and then like we started getting contracts with multiple nightclubs so at the height of it we had like 10 photographers that were working for us so on any given night you know we could have 10 nightclubs going at once all printing out photos and um it just became a very lucrative yet destructive like environment for me to like feed this thing <laughs> inside of me of just like always searching for the next thing and it, it kind of got weird when I started like dating uh, different women that were involved in the strip club industry, which eventually led to like, even just in the sex industry, just like farther out there and more and more like just weird stuff. It led to where, you know, my wife had an apartment. I had like a bachelor pad with like five guys and then uh, I had another apartment with a girlfriend across town and it was just like all of these like double, it was like triple and quadruple lives of, of just leading. And my wife is just kind of caught in the middle of my decisions and this like sickness that I had for just more. And I didn't even know what really what I was searching for. It was just the next feeling. I think she was just kind of numb to it at some point. Like hopefully like he'll just snap out of it and like become a normal person. And uh, it was almost like this uh, addiction, this narcissistic addiction to whatever I wanted. I had it in my mind that like, you know what? 
Um, I don't want to be married to her anymore. I'm just going to send her back to New York and I'm going to just going to continue to live this lifestyle. I've got, you know, this girl over here, this girl over here. I don't even need a place to live. I can just kind of bounce around wherever I need to go. I kind of forced it on her. I was like, look, meet me at FedEx Kinko's. We're going to sign divorce papers. I already have them printed out and filled out. All we need to do is sign them. And then you can go back to, you know, your family in New York. And of course she took the boys and yeah, that was the summer of 2009 and we signed divorce papers. Looking back, it was such, oh, such like a, a dark place to be, to send your family away from you because they, they represented stopping a lifestyle that you thought you needed. And I waited two weeks to send the divorce papers in and they were in like a manila envelope like 30 pages thick, right? A manila envelope and they were underneath my driver's seat. Now it's summer, it's hot. And I don't know how it can happen like inside of an envelope, but like when I took the papers out to send them in to file the divorce papers, all of the ink, like every pen mark, signature, uh, you know, there was different people that had to sign. All those signatures were gone. It's like as if you left a piece of paper in the sun and you know, like the ink turns yellow. It's like that, but through the entire stack. And I couldn't explain it. I mean, I guess you could say the heat did it, but still it was like, it would just seem surreal. It's like, man, I we, we really tried to do this and they wouldn't accept the papers for anything. There was there was no, there, you, you have to get these re-signed, right? That's what they told us to do. And she ended up coming back to Vegas because the family in New York, they're like, Hey, like, these are your kids. Like you need to take, take care of them. And they weren't trying to take my responsibility and take care of now Kimberly and these two boys, right? We had a second son in the midst of this. They weren't going to do that. So she really had to come back. So I was like, okay, look, you can come back. And it was crazy because like the apartment that we had at the time, like she left for two months and came back and the apartment was exactly the same. It had not been rented. It was almost like God knew like, hey, she's coming back. Like nobody's, this apartment is for her. It was in that apartment when she came back that she ended up giving her life to the Lord. Our life got actually darker after she returned. And I told her about the papers and all of this stuff. And we got involved in some stuff and some relationships that were really just unhealthy uh, there was a uh, police called at different times. There was a lot of just really just toxic manipulation and anger and outbursts and all of these things. We never got physical with one another, but it was just really emotionally unhealthy, which led to her hitting rock bottom and she was ready to end her life. And I don't want to share her testimony for her, but it's like understanding like she hit rock bottom and gave her life to the Lord and went to church and joined a women's group. And they started praying for me. They started praying that my heart would change. And it was really hard for her to even be vulnerable. Like, you know, here's these women, they all have families that are normal, right? And like, she has to open up now about like her <laughs> toxic husband who like forced her to sign divorce papers. And, and now they're, you know, we're still married. She said, you know, if you, if you want to pick up the kids, this is a safe place, like at kids' church, so you can pick them up from here. 
I'm like, okay, you know, fine. And then, you know, she's like, if you want to come into the service, like you can. And it was like really big, seeker friendly, massive church. It looked like we call it the airport, right? It's this huge church, you know, all the lights and smoke and, you know, that kind of experience. So I was like, it was fine. It wasn't like, it wasn't weird. It was, it felt like a concert that had a good message. And I, I would go from time to time and I was interested. I, I, I think deep down I wanted to be a different person. I just was so consumed with just the, the needs, the desires of the flesh. And I feel like because of all of the relationships and the soul ties that I was building, that there was really a lot of demonic activity going on within me. It was almost like I was out of control and my life was given over to the enemy. Travis, real quick, can you explain for people who are watching that don't know what a soul tie is, can you explain what that is and how that was affecting you in that way? Because of the relationships that I was engaged in and having sexual intimacy or intercourse with lots of different women, I think when you engage in that kind of activity, there's a spiritual transaction that takes place. And because of those transactions that I was involved with, there were these ties. It almost feels like being haunted in your heart. It feels like all of the, the mess and the drama that each of these people have, you're then sharing your body and your life with them and taking a little piece and giving them a little piece. And it's really, when you think about it in the spiritual realm, it's, it's kind of disgusting. It's not, it's not, not kind of, it is disgusting. Not that people are disgusting, but just the mess that we bring with sin, the disease of sin and how it affects us. So because of that, I, I truly believe that I had um, a lot of demonic influence in my life. So e even as my wife was inviting me to church, I was still partying. I was still, you know, living this crazy life. And I remember just partying all night and I was at this strip club. I was hanging out with this girl. And I remember waking up the next morning and I, <laughs> this image is still in my head. I remember seeing her feet. <laughs> and I don't know if you know, <laughs> when some people party in Las Vegas, they walk around with no shoes on. <laughs> And I just remember seeing her dirty feet and something in me just like shifted. It was like, what, what, what is, what is going on here? And I remember going in the mirror and just saying, God, if you're, if you're real, like, I don't want this life anymore. And if you're real, well, you got to show me. Cause I, I'm, I'm ready to, to end this all. I don't, I don't think I want this. And there was just this brokenness throughout all, all these relationships. That was right around the time of my birthday. I had just turned 28. And I went to a Saturday night service at this church and there was a guest speaker who was planting a church in Las Vegas for people who don't like church. <laughs> and I was like, that's me, <laughs> sign me up. But he shared the gospel in such a unique way that I had never heard it before. And he really used the the parable of the prodigal son. Now I don't know if if you know this story, but it's it's this story where this son is given this inheritance and has all of this like 
treasure that's given to him, and he goes off to a foreign land and squanders everything that his father has given him on wild living. That's what it says in the Bible. It, you know, gambling, partying, prostitutes, all of it, right? That's what he spends all of his money on. And he, he, he finds himself broke without anything and says, well, I'll just go back to my father and ask him to be a slave. I mean, at least this, you know, the servants eat better than I am right now. And I just, I just so resonated with that story. I could see myself in this story, just this process. It was like, I had a great life, all this talent, you know, even in my mess, I was still a visionary and an entrepreneur. I had all of this, these gifts and I squandered it all on darkness. And he gave this invitation to come to the father, to come back to the father. And I just remember this feeling that still to this day is mysterious to me, even though I experience it all the time. It just felt like, it felt like perfect love. The love of the Holy Spirit came and like dropped on me and it felt like it exploded in my chest. I I can only call it like a grace explosion, right? And every lie, every demonic thought, every influence, every soul tire was like broken in this moment and fled from my life. And I walked, I walked in that building, one person and walked out a different person. I remember my wife like looked over at me and I'm just like weeping uncontrollably, sitting in my seat, nobody laid hands on me. And it wasn't like a, a, a Holy Spirit type of church, right? It wasn't a charismatic experience, but I, uh, church, but I had a charismatic experience just sitting in my seat experiencing the love of God, it just transformed me from the inside out. Travis, before you move forward, can we kind of go back to when you were kind of experiencing your own brokenness? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit and give us just a little bit more insight of what that looked like? Because from the outside, you have the girls, you have the money, the businesses, the party lifestyle. People would think that you were doing fine. Can you kind of give us insight of what was so bad about the life you were living? I think on the outside, you absolutely could look at my life and say, man, Travis is living a cool life. Like, I I think some people would look at that and be like, oh, I wish I had that. Women and and fast money and really, you know, living a life however I chose to. In the midst of that, I knew that there was something deeply wrong with me. And I knew that there was a hole inside of me that nothing, anything I put in that, that space, that void, nothing could fill it. And it was almost like searching for satisfaction and never being able to find it. And it's like you get a, dr- a drink of water and being always thirsty for more and never truly being full. And I think as as a man, I came to that realization that night or that morning. <laughs> morning and night get mixed up in that lifestyle. That morning waking up, seeing that woman's feet, looking in the mirror, looking face to face with my brokenness. I came face to face with it. I mean, that's, that's what happened. Now, Travis, explain to us what happened next after you've experienced this grace explosion, as you called it. You're feeling the tangible presence of God. 
what does your life begin to look like? Literally walking into that church, having that experience, walking out as a different person. My wife didn't believe me at first. At first she was like, hey, is this another like manipulation that you're trying to do to get me back into your life? Um, are you just trying to play this game so that you know you can string me along again? And she was very patient to see if this was real. And you know, I had to go back also to run this business that was involved in nightlife. I had to go back and party and hang out with people in these environments that were really unhealthy. And it was weird because like I would go back into this environment and I would get physically sick to my stomach where I would have to leave. So it was like now where this this sickness was hungry for more. Now I would find myself in the same environment and I couldn't wait to leave. I couldn't leave fast enough. Like I would physically feel sick and I'd have to like, I can't be here. I have to go. And it was, <laughs> that was, this all happened December 13th, 2009. Two weeks later, my biggest nightlife contract said, we're not going to renew with you. All of my contracts, like photographers started quitting like randomly. It was like God was removing not just the desire, but he was also removing the environment. Anything that was left that could try and draw me back in, he was taking away. He took away my business and I was happy to give it up. Um, and I found myself going from a lifestyle of having a lot to having nothing but being completely joyful with nothing. And the crazy part is that like my wife began to realize like, like, no, there's something really different about you. There's something I can't deny. I can't. Yeah. You're, you're, you're transformed. And I think the most beautiful part about this story is her and what God did in her heart, the power of forgiveness and the grace to see someone as the new creation. She saw me not as the person who had broken her trust over and over again, not the person who belittled her verbally. She didn't see me as the person that abandoned her. She saw me as this new man. And with this new opportunity for life. And she really allowed me to be that person. Um, it wasn't like she trusted me right away, but she forgave me fully. And I just praise God because how many of us get saved? Or we have an experience where we get transformed and there's people in our lives that then become accusers of who we used to be. It's so unfortunate that we can't really start over, you know? Uh, but I really, I had that opportunity to start over. Um, so we, <laughs> we uh, moved back in together and it was crazy because we had less money and God gave us a nicer house. Like we were in apartments, apartment to apartment, and God actually gave us a house for the same amount that we were paying for apartments. And we lived in that house for five years. We had our other two kids. We have two kids from before and two kids after. They're like our BC and AD kids, right? Um, and uh, we got baptized, renewed our vows on Valentine's Day, 2010. 
And we've been just been on this journey of just seeking the Lord and God, wherever you want us to go, we'll go. Now, Travis, can you tell us a little bit, because your salvation was in 2009, so it's been a little while since you started walking with the Lord. Can you tell me a little bit about what the Lord has led you into, even ministry-wise, alongside your wife and, and your family? I was so on fire when I got saved that like, I was the guy that would tell people about Jesus everywhere he went. Like I had all this fire, but no real wisdom on how to do that. Like, how do I really communicate the gospel to people? My family members, my mom, my dad, like nobody wanted to talk to me. Like, hey, if you want to talk to us, that's fine, but not about Jesus, <laughs> right? And even my wife, like I remember her saying like, can we just go to the store without you telling someone about Jesus? <laughs> and it just became this thing, like I was just so on fire. And it almost like felt like I went from one addiction to the next. So it was like, okay, fine, you were addicted in this narcissistic lifestyle. But now that same fire and passion and hunger for this was transferred into like, God, I need to tell people about you. And that became ministry. So in a way, like ministry became a mistress. And I had to relearn everything about the kingdom life. I had to relearn how I stewarded my finances, how I parented, how I loved my wife, how um, I had balance in my life between the things that I feel I'm called to and my first ministry, which is really being being at home and being present and being a provider and, and a protector and all of those things I had to relearn. And it was a pretty <laughs> repetitive process of surrender. Um, I don't think, you know, we just surrender one time, but we have these moments like over and over again, where it's God, it's yours, it's all yours. And teach me how to love and teach me how to do this. Um, and he's so faithful and patient with us. It's, it's just amazing. I remember we were like helping different church planters, uh, plant churches in Las Vegas. And we just felt like there was something missing. There was a sense of adventure that just wasn't there. And I just said, you know, Kimberly, I feel like I feel like we're supposed to go across country and just share our story and just preach the gospel. And that summer, uh, 2012, we ended up driving. We put our our, our three kids in the car. Uh, my daughter Zoe was like, I don't know, one years old at the time. And we drove from California all the way back to New York. Uh, we preached the gospel in like where we met and got married and like in our hometown to like all these people that knew us before. Uh, we preached the gospel all along the way in different cities and then back again. And it was, I think it was one of the, the things that defined us as a family that like, hey, this is our life. And we've always kind of like, God, wherever you want to send us. So we've gone to Guatemala, we've gone to Mexico, we've gone to the Philippines, we've done all these trips. And as for my kids, like growing up, experiencing these things, that Christianity is not just something that we do on Sundays, but it's something that we live out. And we became part of this uh, food pantry, like kind of missional church in like one of the worst neighborhoods in Las Vegas. Uh, they call it Naked City. Those times really just defined who we are as a family. And in the midst of that, I still had to say, you know what, God, it's not about the things that you can do through me, but 
about who we are together. Yeah, it's a, a beautiful journey. Travis, could you give us just a little bit of insight about your relationship with your wife and your guys' marriage now? Um, some people would think that just because you guys are Christian now, you're both saved, that everything's easy and perfect. Is that the case? And how has that kind of been for you guys, especially adding ministry in the mix? Kimberly and I have had an amazing journey. We've been married longer as Christians than we have as not. And there was always like a disconnect because I was so missional focused and like always wanted to be out in the streets and preaching the gospel and traveling and doing music ministry and all of these different things. And her heart was really just for the home and for the kids. And like, she just, I feel like in a way, Kim really just wanted a normal Christian life, right? She's like, can you just be a guy that you know, works a nine to five, provide, provides for us well. We can go on vacation a little bit. We can do a mission here and there, but can we just have a normal life? And it's just not who I am. I'm radical in so many ways. And I just know that there's more for us if we're willing to step out. Um, so she's, she's really been an amazing wife in supporting my crazy ideas. I mean, we, felt led to leave Las Vegas and move to Denver, Colorado um, to start uh, this discipleship ministry and start like planting some house churches. And, you know, she was willing to do that. And now we just moved uh, to Iowa City uh, to reach the University of Iowa. It's it's one of the, the, the top 10 party schools in the country and it's really underreached. And Kimberly has no desire to reach the university but she loves the Lord and she knows of what he's doing through my life. And she's been an amazing partner. I think the challenge with us in our marriage is whenever I try and force her to do what I'm doing, and I've really had to come to grips in my, you know, <laughs> with the Lord in him teaching me how to let her be who she is and not require her to do what I'm doing. Anytime I've done that, it has not worked out well. Uh, it has backfired. And anytime I've really just led naturally and just been myself, a lot of times she ends up coming alongside just because she wants to, as opposed to me saying, I need you to do this with me. But one of the most beautiful things and the most challenging things that we've done as a family uh, was during the pandemic, you know, everything was shut down and we're like, I don't think we know how to worship together as a family. Like we've, you know, done church stuff, we've done missional stuff, we've do devotionals, but like there was something like missing in like the living room when we would gather and like really worship. And I'll tell you what, like <laughs> that was the most, one of the most frustrating things because I can lead worship for a group of adults or disciples that like really are hungry, right? And it just flows naturally. But try doing that with the people that you are closest to and love the most. And it's something we had to learn. But once we broke through that, there was just uh, this amazing freedom that we experienced in our household. And this really only happened over the last three years. So Travis, even walking through, even what you've gone through in the last three years, just developing this worship life and all of these things with your family and ministry, who can you say Jesus has been to you during this time? Throughout my experiences with Jesus, I can say 
with all honesty that he is my best friend. That, yes, he's Savior and he's glorious, he's the Lamb slain, and we will worship him for all eternity. But I feel like that paints a picture of this massive God that's not attainable for us as human beings. Jesus is close. And he just... He longs to be with us. And when I realized that he just wanted to be with me, everything changed. And I get busy a lot still. And I just hear him saying, just come away for just a little while. I taught myself to play guitar out of necessity. And it's been one of the most beautiful th things that I get to do with him and just spend time talking, praying, playing. He's close. Travis, do you have any words of encouragement for the people who may be struggling in their marriage and are really waiting for God to intervene? I know there's lots of people that are probably watching this and saying, well, I got divorced. My marriage didn't turn out like yours. God didn't intervene when I signed divorce papers. I know there's lots of people that may be watching and saying, we're throwing the D word around right now. And that divorce is something that's talked about. I don't know why God saved my marriage other than to say that he had a plan. And regardless of what you're experiencing right now, maybe in your marriage, he still has a plan for you as well. That he's right there in the mist. And I think you're watching this maybe because he wants to get your attention in some way to say, I love you. And if you will surrender to me, I have a plan of reconciliation for you. That there is no relationship that is too far gone. And all of the brokenness that we experience in life is healed in his blood. And in his sacrifice, we are healed. And I just hope and pray <laughs> that this story you know, in this short amount of time can have an impact on your life to say, God, if you're real, I need you to do something, something miraculous. Do you have any advice specifically for the spouses that are struggling with their unsaved spouse and the behavior that they may mm. be showing? A lot of times, you know, one spouse is saved, right? And the other person is not. And I feel like my wife could really better answer this because she was the one on that side of it where, you know, she had already given her life and was really like pleading for God to change me. Um, I think that we don't really understand the power of prayer and that when you cry out to God with a sincere heart, he not only hears you, but like he moves into action. And I always tell people this, it's impossible to pray and for nothing to happen in faith. When we release these words to our Father, He hears us and He is faithful that everything you ask in His name, according to His will, He will give you. 
I think like we, we have a misconception of marriage where it's like a construct of man. But I think it's really important that we understand that it's not a man-made thing, that it is actually, actually a sacrament of God. It is a sacred idea and design that he made, not us. And when we look at it from that perspective, we have to come to a place of humility. I think Kimberly came to a place of humility. I came to a place of humility. And ultimately, Jesus came to a place of humility where he could make this thing possible. So love suffers long. What would you say to those people that are watching who may have experienced that same emptiness that you've talked about throughout your testimony, and they still haven't found that thing that satisfies them? We've been made to be full. Like you were made to be fulfilled and whole and satisfied, yet always knowing that there is more satisfaction to be had in the Lord. And I think if we're, because we're, we're designed to be filled, we'll find something to fill it with. You will always find something to worship. You're made for this. You will find something to give your adoration to. And I know that, you know, you may be watching this and saying like, yeah, I've been trying to fill myself with this, this, and this, and it's just not working. And I can identify and right resonate with what that feeling of emptiness. I just want to encourage you that like God designed you with a unique passion for something. And even if you don't know what that is yet, like if you just yield to him and say, God, here I am. I, I no longer want to try and fill myself. I no longer want to worship these things that pull me away. If you come to that place of just saying, God, here I am, um, he will take you on the most beautiful adventure that you have ever experienced. Travis, do you have any last words for the people who are watching? My final advice is to turn off your phones often. Take away all the distractions. Find that place, that secret place where you can really commune with the Lord. And I know we take him with us. Like a lot of times we practice that and we take him with us. But there's something about that secret place time. There's nothing else like it. Travis, we would love it if you could just pray for the people that are watching who may be connecting to different parts of your testimony. Yeah, Father, I just, I thank you for every person who is listening, who is watching, who is experiencing this story. And God, I just ask that you would do it again. I know that there are marriages that are on the brink that you want to restore. I know that there are people that are hurting and broken that have already gone through divorce and are saying, God, what, what about me? I feel like I have the, the, a, <laughs> a scarlet letter on me. And Lord, I just ask that you would remove that shame, that guilt, that condemnation that the enemy wants to continue to um, sow into their lives. God, that you would remove it right now in this moment. I, I speak freedom right now over uh, sexual addiction, over alcohol addiction, over the addiction to money and, 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 and material items. God, the same power that raised you from the dead is available to us right now. God, that you would draw near to these people and that they would feel safe to draw near to you. That you are not 
an angry God, that you are smiling over us right now, singing songs of freedom, that there are angels surrounding people right now. God, we come against division. God, that the the people that you have put together, that you have brought into a covenant relationship with you, that no person, no ego, no words would be able to divide those things. God, I pray that even right now, that as people maybe have be signing divorce papers, God, that you would do the same thing again, that you would erase them, that you would erase them, that this would become a regular thing, that divorce papers for, for, for families that are meant to be together, Just have your way. Have your way in your people. Thank you, Jesus. Hey, everybody. I hope the new testimony has blessed you, has encouraged you. Just wanted to let you know that if you are in need of help, that we have people that are ready to speak with you. So down in the description box below, in the comment section, uh, if you're watching from YouTube, if you're listening from our podcast, just look for the link that says, talk to someone who cares. Click on that, fill out the form, and somebody will get in contact with you locally. Now, this is only available to people in the U.S. right now, but we are working to get resources for our international viewers and listeners. But for right now, if you are in the U.S. and you need help, you need to talk with somebody, please fill out that form and somebody will reach out to you. God bless you, and we'll see you on the next testimony.